Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome a trauma or adversity in their early years to achieve great success. Our guest today is the world's best-known neurosurgeon who spent the last 40 years doing some of the most technical and delicate operations on the brain. His book, Do No Harm, became an instant bestseller as he told his story of saving lives under intense pressure from Nepal to Ukraine, as well as in the UK. And now he's writing a new book, and finally... He witnessed a vast amount of dying and death, grief and bereavement in his career. He once wrote, Healthy people, I have concluded, do not understand how everything changes once you've been diagnosed with a fatal illness, how you cling to hope, however false, however slight, and how reluctant most doctors are to deprive patients of that fragile beam of light in so much darkness. But then he was diagnosed himself with prostate cancer during the pandemic. Henry Marsh, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. It must have been quite strange becoming a patient yourself when you've spent so many years saving everyone else's lives. Yes, it was. Um, And although I knew, I'd seen, heard many elderly doctors saying I didn't really understand what it was like to be a patient until I became one myself, it is profoundly true. There is a huge gulf that separates patients and doctors um, and some of that's necessary. I mean, you have to be one of the great challenges of being a doctor, particularly if you do sort of dangerous surgery, as I did. But in fact, for all doctors, is to find a balance between being compassionate and being detached. It's easy to go too much to one side, to get too involved or become too cold and detached. And it is very difficult. And yet, once I became a patient myself and was looking at looking at the NHS, I was an NHS patient, and some of my colleagues with an experienced eye. It was it was very interesting. We want to take you back to your childhood, mm. and you're the youngest of four. You grew up in quite an academic family. I, what, I, what do you remember of those? Well, it's, isn't, isn't that interesting? I mean, there's so much psychological research showing that memory is deeply unreliable. Every time we remember something, we're actually reconstructing it. It's not that we're plucking the ready-made memory from a library shelf. And when I think about my childhood, visually, I tend to remember photographs rather than the actual sort of places or events themselves. Uh, my, I have to think very hard to start remembering my childhood. Um, what I do know is I had an incredibly privileged upbringing, culturally privileged Uh, My mother was a political refugee from Nazi Germany. 
My, they'd met in Halle in, in Germany. My mother wouldn't join the, the um, Bund des Deutschen Mädel, the, the women's equivalent of the Hitler Youth. So she couldn't go to university. And the next best thing she could do was train as a bookseller, because being Germany, being a bookseller is a very serious business. I mean, she could wrap parcels. It was just fantastic how well <laughs> she could wrap parcels. So she went to Halle. She grew up in Magdeburg. Her brother became a Luftwaffe Messerschmitt 109 fighter pilot, was shot down but survived. And her sister became an enthusiastic Nazi. So when my mother was denounced to the Gestapo by one of, I think by the sort of janitor at the bookshop in Halle, she basically had to leave because she was, she was going to be appear as a witness in the trial of her friends who um, were accused of anti-Hitler sentiments. The Gestapo interrogated her all day and said, "Well, you're a stupid girl. No, we don't know what you don't know what's good for you. We're not going to prosecute you." But she felt she wouldn't be able to stand up to cross-examination in court. And she had met my father, who'd gone to Halle to learn German because he was a passionate European. He was secretary of the Oxford University League of Nations Association—a pretty, almost nerdish thing to do. He already spoke French. He wanted to learn German, and that's how they met. And to cut a long story short, in effect, he married her so she could come to England to get away from the Gestapo. But what I hadn't really... And she then wrote a, a book about her childhood. It's a beautifully written book in perfect English, which we had, my family had privately published. But it's only really recently, as I approach the end of my own life, I realise how little attention I paid her. She was terribly restrained and undemanding, very strict, but in a very firm way. Um, but it's one of the things I discuss in my next book, that you know, she clearly suffered from very severe survivor guilt, mm. and I never really appreciated that. I mean, looking back on my life, I'm frankly appalled at how selfish and self-obsessed I was. But then in my more ironic moments, I think, well, maybe that's Marsh, because... You only have your past self to compete with now. I've now retired. I'm lecturing and teaching still. I no longer operate. Um, I'm no longer competing professionally, you know, where I was for most of my life. And now I can only abuse my past self. Maybe I wasn't quite as awful as I think <laughs> I was. But I am, I am very struck at how, how well, selfish isn't quite the word, the how driven I was um, by my own ambitions and needs. As the youngest of four, my father was a profoundly humane and moral man, unbearably reasonable. To be, an, <laughs> to be a 1960s rebellious teenager was really very difficult. <laughs> and I always knew I was, I was being pretty unreasonable. But I, felt I sort of followed the family footsteps and, and went to Oxford University to read PPE. There wasn't really any science in the family or in my own education. And then after two years at Oxford, I tell the story, I think in my second book, I can't remember now, I ran away. I'd fallen madly in love, very inappropriately, with an older woman. I couldn't cope with it. Somehow this also turned into a sort of rebellion against my father, who didn't deserve it. Um, and I went off to work as an operating theatre porter in Ashington, a mining town in Newcastle purely because I'd watched that film Get Carter, 
with Michael Caine and was rather impressed by the Northeast. And by a weird coincidence, the girlfriend of one of my friends at Oxford was a, a general surgeon at Ashington. And I said to Jane, I said, well, could you ask your father if, if I could work as a porter in the hospital? And I mean, this was the NHS 50 years ago, and the answer came back, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but were- what it was about was I thought, I'm terribly unhappy. This is totally self-pitying and pathetic. I ought to see real suffering and work in a hospital. So it was both morbid and therapeutic at the same time. And why were you unhappy? What What was the reason behind oh, that? I was just madly unhappily in love, basically, as simple as that. I mean, it's very hard to to understand, but I think many of the crises in my life were all somehow to do with sex. And I didn't understand that. But it is fundamental and it's very amusing that I'm now castrated, <laughs> chemically castrated, for my prostate cancer. So it has various effects, one of which is a complete loss of interest in sex, which you still have by my age. It's a bloody nuisance. I don't miss it at all. So was that the defining influence, do you think, that you kept falling in love with people or you were obsessed by them? Or It, it certainly, yes, it was a bit, I think. Mm. Um, but then you see again, I mean, falling in love sort of feels quite divine, but it's mad at the same time, you know? And it's we're, we're driven by these deep evolutionary forces. And and this is something I discuss in my, my new book, how we, we just don't understand, we don't have the language or the understanding to explain the relationship between the conscious and the unconscious self. So who did you fall in love with at Oxford? What happened? Oh, I'm not going to talk about that. It's <laughs> okay. too embarrassing. Uh, um, did you get depressed? or? Yes, I was quite suicidal. And I was, I was sent a while as, a, uh, as an inpatient at a psychiatric hospital, which was very, very helpful. And why um, did you not then want to become a psychiatrist? I always did. Um, I, I, the, the professor of psychiatry. I, having, I went back to Oxford because I, I, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon because I'd watch surgeons opera. I've always loved using my hands. And I, I, I'm, I suppose you could call me a bit of an intellectual, but I'm terribly manual as, as well. And apparently according to my family from a very early age. Um, so I wanted to be a surgeon. And I thought I won't um, be able to get into medical school if I flunked my first degree. So I went back to Oxford <coughs> and worked like mad. And, and I can say, say boastfully that I got an unvived first. And on the basis of that, managed to get into the last medical school in London, which, which took people out science A-levels. So do you think your depression had anything at all to do with your childhood or your parents or the sense well, of pressure? Well, I don't know. Or... Yes, to the extent I think the whole family was very sexually repressed. I think my parents were both pretty, pretty prudish. But they were people of their time. This was the 1950s. And I never took part in all the, the wild, um, hippie, hippie pleasures of the 1960s. I was at home writing mad poetry and reading lots of books and... So I was a bit of a, a sort of nerd. And I longed to have a girlfriend. I was immensely sexually frustrated. Um, <laughs> but the point is, again, you know, if you think how you know, sex and the religious urge, the sort of oceanic feeling, as Freud called it, and outrageously claimed women didn't have it, is it, something very, t- it's very tied up together. You know, that yes, we have this, if you watch animals copulating, you think, well, are they... 
what are, what are they thinking at the moment? <laughs> what are they feeling? Um, and it, it's and you know having an orgasm is a physical experience, but there's much more to it as well. And we don't understand this. We just don't have a language to how to put this all together. And we tend to be so completely underestimate how everything we do and feel is is the product of millions of years of evolution and this drive to procreate to live. Do you think your parents were in love when they got you know, married? I or really do you think they don't fell know. Um, it was a very successful mm. marriage, um, although um, my mother had prolonged psych- psychoanalysis shortly after I was born. And my parents used to joke and tease me, you know, you'll suffer from maternal deprivation. But I don't think that's quite the case. But who knows, maybe. Um, but I remember when my first marriage was ending in a very, very unpleasant divorce, although my first wife now and I are very good friends. Um, I had quite a long conversation with my parents. I then was, I was, what, 50, 40, late 40s. And I spoke to them really as, as an equal adult about their marriage. Uh, and they were a little bit coy about it. But... It, it, if I understood them correctly, and again, I don't trust my own memories, and I, I take everything I remember on with some caution, but I was given to understand my father had been on the verge of marrying somebody else in England. Uh, and then he said, well, I've got to save Crystal, I'll, I'll marry her. But it, yes, it was, it was a bit complicated, perhaps. My father was an unbearably reasonable person. He was a great human rights lawyer, one of the first international human rights lawyers. I had no interest in the law at all. I thought it was very boring. But once I, and they were among the people who founded Amnesty International, my mother ran the registry of political prisoners for many years and played a quite crucial role in it. Um, But when I started working in funny countries, which again, I could clearly see in retrospect was because of my sort of cultural inheritance, my parents, and in particular Ukraine, I came to understand what my father's work was all about, which is the rule of law. I mean, democracy is meaningless without the rule of law, without an independent judiciary. And I've worked in all these countries, like Ukraine, Nepal, Sudan, Pakistan, all of these countries where basically the judiciary is more or less corrupt. Uh, and you cannot have true freedom without, without that. Which is why when I saw that headline in the, the daily nameless um, at the time of Brexit, saying enemies of the people, the High Court judges, I really felt mm. terrified. Mm. It was a real sort of cold, cold feeling in the heart. To is see there that a headline. sense that medicine's also about putting the worlds to rights, or is it much more of a human thing? Well, I was working in Ukraine quite explicitly for sort of political reasons. I'd specialised, it was all funny coincidence, uh, I'd specialised mainly, my main interest in PP was the Soviet Union and Russia. Why would again the very paradoxical binary reasons? Um, I, I love Tolstoy. I think he's now he's a brilliant writer, but a bit bit of a humorless bore, um, particularly <laughs> his later books. But he's a brilliant writer. Um, and I saw Doctor Zhivago, and I was terribly impressed by Tom Courtney dressed in black, being a sort of <laughs> cheekist. And I had this slight obsession with, with the Nazi era because of my mother. And I know, and I read just about every book I could lay my hands on about the camps and totalitarianism. In retrospect, it almost feels like a sort of intellectual pornography. Now I can't stand it. I, I 
cannot bear reading anything. Um, I just get so upset. But with Ukraine, I went there initially by chance. But I could see immediately that this was a country, the med all medical systems reflect the country they work in, which is why the NHS is so unequal. You know, if you live in London, you'll get world-class treatment, tax-funded. If you live out in some of the more remote towns, you won't get very good treatment. And it's the same in America. Go to Scandinavia. I was lecturing in Norway last week. I mean, if all the world could be like Scandinavia, wouldn't it be wonderful, mm. you know? But they have great social, social equality, less inequality, and they pay high taxes, and they're ethnically fair. All lots of reasons. But the Ukrainian medical system, the neurosurgery, I found it was madly out of date and primitive, but totally sort of professor-dominated. I mean, the Soviet Union basically was all about civility to the people above you uh, and treating the people below you with, with contempt and horribleness. And the medical system was rather like that. And I met this young surgeon who wanted to change things. And we worked together for many years. Dare I say it, did remarkable things. But, in a sense, it ends sadly. Um, and a lot of my new book is about self-deception <laughs> in all sorts of ways, how we have to deceive ourselves as doctors uh, um, for a start. But as my colleague became more and more famous throughout Ukraine and better and better equipped, it was pure animal farm. Mm. You know, having been the revolutionary pig, he ended up morphing into a, into a Soviet-style dictatorial professor. So I had stopped working with him after 25 years. In many ways, I left it too late. But I was reading qualities into him that he didn't really have. And I was all seeing myself in a rather heroic role, which, which I wasn't. But I felt right from the start with Ukraine, this was a culture where bits of it are struggling to escape um, Russian autocracy and despotism. And I'd come back to England this is in the 1990s. I first went there in 92, and I'd say, look, guys, Ukraine is a really important country. It is the borderland between Western European freedom uh, and Russian dictatorship. And people would look at me and say, Ukraine, so where's that? Isn't it part of Russia? I'd say, no, 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 no. And, and now it's all painfully come true, uh, and it's, it's horrifying what's going yeah. on. So why did you, when you'd been a hospital porter, how did you then become a surgeon? Why did you decide to become a surgeon? I had tried to kill myself, sort of, rather half-heartedly, um, and felt I somehow have to clean the slate and, and run away. So it was a sort of act of denial, but at the same time, by working in a hospital, I felt, well, I'll see proper suffering rather than my self-indulgent poetic suffering as obsessed with the poetry of Sylvia Plath at the time, which I now found a bit of a pain <laughs> and self-pitying. Um, and I decided after a few months living all by myself in a, in a sort of hostel on the muddy banks of the River Wandsbeck that I wanted a professional middle-class career after all, mm -hmm. but in effect one of my own choosing. Um, and uh, you know, my parents completely accepted that because they were such wonderful parents. Um, so, and again, having run away from my college at Oxford, they said, well, you can come back and take your degree, which again was extraordinary kind of them. Um, so I worked like mad for a year. I met my first wife and we were very happy together for, for quite a long time um, and got an unvived first on the basis of that, got into medical school in London. I wanted to be a surgeon. 
I was very interested in psychiatry because I'd actually been a psychiatric inpatient for a while after I finished working as a hospital porter. Um, and, and the professor of psychiatry, a guy called Gerald Russell, kind of tried to grab hold of me. But I felt I wanted something more practical and manual. Um, so I, when I qualified, I still wanted to be a surgeon, but didn't actually like it very much. Um, the surgery I saw, and I hadn't seen any brain surgery as a student. And then one day, purely by chance, when I was working as a senior house officer on the intensive care unit at the Royal Free Hospital, I went down to visit as an anaesthetist just to help with the anaesthetic and was an operation for a cerebral aneurysm. And I, I haven't got my diary for that time. I, I, I've lost it. But uh, the way I like to remember it is it was a completely epiphanic experience. I just watched this operation done with a microscope, incredibly dangerous, incredibly fiddly, pretty charismatic neurosurgeon who became my patron. And I more or less went home and said to, to Hillary, my first wife, I said, I'm going to be a brain surgeon. And so story goes, family, friends, Henry, brain surgeon, yeah, you know, it, mm. it fits, you know, over overweening ambition. And didn't one of your children also then Well, yes, a, a year tumor. before that, my son William had had a, a brain tumour, mm. a, a very serious one for a three-month-old baby. Had he had surgery? Oh, yeah, he had, yes. I, but oddly enough, I don't know if that was... The, well, it must have contributed, but I think it was actually watching this aneurysm operation, which does, for me was just magic. And do you have to be incredibly emotionally detached when you're doing the operation? Yes, you do. Um, and you have to learn somehow to control your feelings. You're often anxious, but of course the dividing line between anxiety and fear, between excitement and fear, is, is very fine. Mm. And, of course, I think what makes the difference, and research shows this, is that if you're in control, more or less, then it's exciting. But when you start to feel you're losing control, then it becomes, frankly, terrifying. And there have been two or three occasions in my career when I felt terrified, when I basically got lost, and getting lost in somebody's brain is a, is a terrible experience. Oh, so how do you then feel after you that? You feel bloody awful. Yeah. Um, and when if, when you have your first disasters as a consultant, when you're a junior, you have disasters, but you're still, you're not, the buck doesn't stop with you. You feel bad about it, but it doesn't really feel terribly threatening. Once you're a consultant, when you have your first bad result, it, it's awful, and I'd feel quite sick for weeks on end. And do you have to accept that you are going to kill people if you're a surgeon? Um, you have to accept that patients are going to die, mm. despite your best efforts, and sometimes, depending on the branch you're in. I mean, there's some branches of surgery where death doesn't normally happen, but neurosurgery and maybe cardiac surgery mm. are, the, are the worst. But as I say in my lectures to trainees, you know, the triumphs are triumphs because we have disasters if every operation went well. And if it didn't hurt, if you didn't feel awful afterwards, you've, you've lost it. Mm. The whole point is what makes the surgery exciting is your deep concern the patient should do well. It's not a purely abstract experience. When you're operating, you're desperately worried and keen that the patient should do well. 
it, but there's it, also that mismatch between having to be totally emotionally detached but also compassionate. How do you manage well, that? Well, you kind of switch that off, I think, somehow. Mm-hmm. I, I don't quite know how one does it. Um, I read a book about unhappy doctors by a psychologist who counsels unhappy doctors. And she's, it doesn't really tell you how successful doctors manage it, but she just says successful doctors regulate their emotions. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest Henry Marsh. There'll be more from us after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, Henry Marsh. I wouldn't like to be a, a junior doctor now, quite honestly. And the system I trained in, which is now largely gone, was a so-called firm system, where you had a consultant and a you had a, you're part of a little family. You worked madly long hours, but you felt very strongly supported, and because you worked so long, such long hours, you knew everybody in the hospital, uh, and you were respected because they all knew you worked very long hours. But you have, I had that support when I was in training. Um, and then, when you become a consultant, when I became a consultant, I was very much on my own. I was one of three. It was very much all little in in silos. That has changed a lot. There are more consultants now. The departments are bigger. Some work well, some don't. But I think what I would say, the most important support for dealing with such dangerous work is having good colleagues. Only your colleagues understand how you feel. It doesn't mean to say we're all crying in each other's shoulders, but only only your colleagues really understand. So my lectures now, I went into surgery as a sort of furious individualist, not an egomaniac, but very egotistical. I left it absolutely passionate about teamwork. Mm. Teamwork in the real sense of the word, not sitting in committees, Mm. nobody making Mm. decisions, but actually working with friends and you who who will criticize me and I'll criticize them. And the fundamental law is it all goes back to Kahneman's great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is other people are better at seeing my mistakes than I am. 
What have been your greatest success, do you think, or as a team, what were the greatest success? Uh, like many senior doctors, I take more pride in the people I've trained and if they've had successful careers than in all the patients I've treated, partly because my memories of all the patients I've treated are irreversibly stained by all the failures. I quote at the beginning of my first book, I wish I'd written it myself, and it's written by René Lourish, the French vascular surgeon in the 40s and 50s, a bit of a fascist, it was a shame. He wrote this great sentence, say, all surgeons carry within them an inner cemetery, and it's the places to which they have to go from time to time to reflect on their mistakes. And that, I think, rings true with all surgeons who work in, in fact, almost all surgeons, some is more, some areas are more dangerous than others. But as the years go by, coming back to how do you cope, you know, I, the, my horror and despair at things going wrong is increasingly counterbalanced by, by successes. And I think, well, look, come on, most of the time patients have done well. And also, I think, well, yes, you felt like this last time you had a disaster, but you survived. The patient may not have survived, but I survived. You have to carry on. You have to say, well, I'm going to abandon my career. Or, or I carry on. Is there a sense that if life is that precarious, you need to live it to the full, that you take more risks? I don't know. Um, I mean, certainly what attracts surgeons to surgery is, is risk. They like We like frightening ourselves. There's no doubt about that. But we like frightening ourselves in a controlled environment. Um, I used to think that my becoming a surgeon was sort of more about showing off. Um, but I think actually now, I've been thinking a lot about this, it's something much deeper than that. I do have this need to frighten myself, or to, to stimulate myself. And there's a lot of very interesting psychological research on, on children with a low resting heart rate and how they're much more likely to get into trouble with the police when they're teenagers. Well, you may have seen that staggering documentary, Free Solo, about the guy who climbs El Capitan without any ropes. Mm. Utterly extraordinary. Um, and, he, I mean, we're all addicted to frightening ourselves to some extent. And most doctors don't want to be surgeons. And most surgeons don't want to be neurosurgeons. So, as in my slightly dismissive view in the past, there's just Henry showing off again because he's the youngest of four and was drawing attention to himself. Uh, there's something more to it than that, but I don't quite understand. I, I need to challenge myself. Um, now, whether that's because I think at heart I'm a coward <laughs> and I want to prove something to myself or whether it's more a deeper need for stimulation and I need to do slightly extreme things, although in a controlled way, um, I, I'm not sure. So why did you decide to go around the world? Was it the sort of the ultimate um, test well, of yourself? Yes, I, I'm, I'm terrified of travelling. Uh, it's partly because I had this rather disrupted childhood because we, I, we lived in Oxford until I was six. Then we lived in Holland, where my father was Secretary of the International Commission of Juris. And then at eight, I moved back to Oxford. Then at ten, we moved to London, again, for my father's work. So I never really made any friends in retrospect. I went to lots of different, several different schools, um, and I'm basically very have an anxious disposition, which I've mastered. Um, but 
I was always rather, rather felt threatened and out of control when traveling. It's, it's all about being in control. And then by chance, I went to Ukraine in 92. Of course, I discovered if I went to do medical work in other countries, I was looked after. <laughs> Everything was done. I had to get there. It was easy enough. So this is, and of course, this is one of the great privileges of being a doctor. It's still, it is still an international community. Um, and if you want to, you can meet people at conferences. I always tried very hard to, you know, to not to be condescending uh, and just be, say we're all equals together. And if you work in these very disadvantaged countries, you often in some ways is much more difficult, you know, than all the kit we have here. So um, doing this, doing this, doing this overseas work was 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 a way of travelling, which took some of the stress out of it. But then bizarrely. It was in its own way incredibly stressful. Yes. <laughs> Seeing endless terrible cases and doing terrible operations without having the proper equipment, which I'd driven out myself. So it was a funny, funny mixture. And what was it like? How did you feel when the war broke out in Ukraine? Because Absolutely you'd... awful. Absolutely and awful. You must have known so many people yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've yeah. got a blue and yellow ribbon on your jacket. I you? do, and I've got mm. a Ukrainian flag flying on my roof of my house. I mean, Ukraine literally is my second home. Mm. I don't speak the language because all my friends speak English, more or less. But I've been there so many times. And I assumed that Russia would crush Ukraine very quickly, although I knew the Ukrainians would fight to the death, and I assumed there'd be a prolonged Iraq-style counterinsurgency. Um, but all the military analysts, almost all of them, were wrong. Then what's happening now, and what troubles... It's, it's awful in every respect. But you think of the millions of displaced children, uh, all the children, they're not, I've got one, many friends, but one has three kids in Lviv. But children haven't been to school for months on end, mm. and then you had the lockdown as well. And the long term, let alone the physical damage to the country, which is being demolished by the Russians, but the psychological damage to the children is, is unimaginable. Did you want to go out and operate oh. out there? <laughs> yes and no. The answer is neurosurgery is a very small part of battlefield surgery. I know David yeah. Knott, the, the bloke who wrote this brilliant book called War Surgeon, which I wrote the introduction to the American edition. I got name. He got in touch with me when the war started because he wanted to do something to help Ukraine and he knew I'd have lots of contacts. So he went out there to, to a town called Zhitomir and also to Zaporizhia, I think, he asked me to come with him, um, but my wife and daughter said no. And if I'd felt I had a major contribution to make medically, I might have refused and said that them and said yes, I'm going. But actually, although twenty-five percent of war's battlefield war zone casual deaths are from head injuries, you don't do major brain surgery in the middle of a battlefield. Mm. You do minor operations on the scalp or skull, or maybe a an injury which only superficially penetrates the brain. And actually, the Ukrainian medical system is pretty well set up to to deal. Da David Knotts has, has this unrivaled expertise of having worked in just about every war zone in the world and dealing with these ghastly injuries you get with, high, with munitions, high explosives. You get blast injuries and uh, terrible stuff. And how much do you think trauma has a kind of physical effect on the brain? Because there's so much interesting research oh, about... An enormous effect. Okay. I mean, there's research from Bristol University recently 
showing that about 40% of young offenders in prison have a history of significant head injury. Mm. Um, we know that, you know, emotional deprivation, not just physical deprivation, in early childhood has, has a huge effect on later development. This is the great myth mm. of right-wing equal opportunity. I made it. I deserve it. You know, you don't have to invoke genetics to explain why social class, why deprivation um, reproduces itself. Um, yes, I know that 50% of everything is genetic, but you know, your early experiences of childhood, particularly deprivation of love and security, has a huge impact, and there's more and more research showing that, which is another reason why what's going on in Ukraine is so utterly appalling. A whole generation of a large country, a population of 40 million, are suffering long-term brain damage. And you've taken a refugee in, haven't you? How yes, did you find um, them? Well, um, the wife of one of my closest friend's cousins is a doctor, a young cardiologist, and she had an absolutely enormous benign brain tumour, which can happen in young people. And there's a, a tumour called an acoustic neuroma. Um, this was a couple of years ago. And I've, I specialised in operating on these tumours. I'm very, dare I say it, very well known in Ukraine. And she and her family were determined that I should do the operation. And I tell this story in my, my new book. But anyway, to cut a long story short, um, she was operated on by one of my colleagues in London with a spectacular result. Um, but she's now a refugee. She fled with her son, who's a not quite four, and her mother, her husband, of course, couldn't leave. Mm. To, and they'd been squatting somewhere in Warsaw for the last, what's it, March, April, May, last three months. And now, finally, they've got the paperwork to come. I mean, it took ages to get the visas, but <laughs> the biggest problem has been their cat, <laughs> Mimi. Um, and although the cat's been vaccinated against rabies, a lot of the Ukrainian refugees have come with pets. Uh, and there's always very, very complicated certifications. And um, anyway, I, I, I think Mimi now is finally declared sort of <laughs> Felix Grata. Um, but she had to be kept locked up without a cat flap. The cat litter oh, has no. to be double bagged. A vet will be coming to inspect. Have you got a dog or a cat yourself? No, no, I don't. <laughs> I, I've never been terribly keen on cats, <laughs> uh, particularly as they kill birds. And as you probably know, there's been a 70 to 80% drop in garden birds in our lifetimes in this country. I, mean, I was in Albania last week. It was just wonderful up in the mountains. Wildflowers, birdsong everywhere. Like during the lockdown, uh, it was a horrible reminder of what we've lost. During the lockdown, you discovered that you had prostate cancer. How did you find out? Oh, I've be, been literally sitting on my symptoms for years and act, act a very active medical denial. It's notorious that doctors tend to present with advanced cancer because they, they dismiss their symptoms. Um, and the dismissal is partly the compassion detachment problem. Illness happens to patients, not, not to me even though I'd retired. Partly fear and denial. I mean, the symptoms of prostate cancer are also the symptoms of chronic inflammation of the prostate or just benign enlargement, which may, most old men get. Technically, I knew that perfectly well, but I just thought, well, this is just a nuisance and something I've got to live with. Until eventually, um, 
I thought, actually, this is getting rather tedious, and I sort of summoned up the courage to go and see a colleague, and that's how the diagnosis was made. So it was largely about self-deception. And how did you feel? Did you feel angry, or did you feel frightened? I was terribly angry with myself, mm. and, I, um, and I felt I'd sort of let down my family and wife. Um, yeah, I was panic-struck to begin with. I'm now in remission, so I'm reasonably cheerful. When it comes back, it may not come back, but it probably will. Whether I'll go through it, despite all my attempts to prepare myself. But I am 72 years old, and my more sardonic comments that I regard my cancer as vaccination against Alzheimer's. Um, whether I'll be a panic struck again when the blood test comes back, showing the tumour's back, I don't know. I hope not. But it is very difficult to live without hope you're going to live a bit longer mm. you know at my stage I hope it's a few years and I saw with my patients you know then it's a few months and then maybe it's a few days but we have this we are so you know it is so difficult to overcome the wish to go on living life what? has to become pretty unbearable mm. when you thought you were going to die was there anything you wanted to do was there a sense no I, I felt, felt very very clearly I've had a fantastic life I've been incredibly lucky there's nothing else I need to do or want to do other than to be there for my wife and family and any medical colleagues elsewhere who might find me helpful. I felt I had absolutely no, no business to want any more life for myself. That's just pathetic. Do you feel more frightened of dementia than yeah. cancer? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, and yes. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. My father died mm. from it. it. Took ten years. Died of at age of ninety-six, and I saw so many people with brain damage, not from dementia, but just some brain damage, mm. in my work. Um, and I don't know many people in late middle age who haven't had, you know, a dementic, demented mother or father or aunt or uncle. And I'm by the age of eighty, we have about a forty-five percent probability of dementia. And you've got a suicide kit. Yes. I'm campaigning as much as I can for the introduction of assisted dying to this, this country. So why do you feel so strongly about that? Is that because, because of your father's no, experience? No, 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 assisted dying doesn't solve the dementia problem mm. because you have to have mental capacity. So any, any of the opponents to assisted dying, you say it's a, you know, a slippery slope to bumping off demons. It's just not true. The whole... Assisted dying is all about patient choice. It's about mental capacity. And the law has no problems recognising the idea of mental capacity. We have so much safeguarding already built into the healthcare system. Applying that to assist requests for assisted dying is no big deal. But the point is with assisted dying is, is the objections to it from a very small minority in this country, mainly palliative care doctors, are all hypothetical. There is actually evidence now, because so many countries have it, and the, it's quite clear that it is not leading to abuse. It's not leading to a slippery slope where doctors or rogue doctors are bumping off people. It just doesn't happen because of your strong legal safeguards. It would only happen if your legal system was totally corrupt. And that's also, not you, the case. you must have seen when you're conducting your surgery that just the sense of will among families to keep people alive that actually it's yeah, the other no, way around. It's anecdotal but on the whole it was a family who found it more difficult. Afterwards a family who get left behind. You know 
when I die, I'll be missed, I think. I won't miss anybody. <laughs> so it's an asymmetrical relationship. And you spend a lot of time making dolls' houses now, if you're Well, yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> do you, why do you love using your hands so much? Is it sort of mindfulness? I love making things. I mean, as of all craftsmen, I, all I can see are faults mm. in what I make. It, it again, it's, it's showing off. I mean, as a youngest of four, I was always very noisy and driven and demanding, having temper tantrums. Um, so part of me always thinks I'm an awful nuisance. But my mother told me my first word was duk duk, meaning look, look. <laughs> and all art of any sort is communication, as well as saying look at me. And to say look is very two is a very two sided two sided word. Um, and I, I love making things and then showing them off to people. My children get very fed up with me. When they, when I say, oh, no, what are you going to show us this time? Uh, but at the same time... What's it, the thing it, you're proudest of? Well, it's always the next thing I'm going to make, which is going to be better than the last thing I've made. What are you making at the moment? Well, I've just made a highly ornamental radiator cover. When it's completely finished, I'll tweet it so people can <laughs> see it. I haven't finished a very, very elaborate doll's house. And there was another doll's house I made for my, my two older granddaughters. But I, I just like making things of doors and trapdoors and complicated things like that. And wood, I like handling wood. I mean, I, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing to handle and tools. So these so books and tools are the great, great sort of physical loves of my life and lots of wood. Do you feel that hobbies are incredibly important and underrated? I hate the word hobby, but yes, is yeah. the answer. And then the key to... The key to retirement, although, as I said, I've, I'm still lecturing. I was lecturing in both Tirana and um, Pristina um, a few days ago, and before that was lecturing in Norway. And I like lecturing. I, I lecture now not about the technical sides of neurosurgery, <clears throat> but the sort of ethical and psychological aspects of surgery and healthcare systems. But yes, you need, you need um, practical activities, I think, and you need to be important. You need to matter and mean something, even if it's only within your own family group. We know that's what makes human beings happiest, but after you solve the basic shelter and shelter and food problem. And do you still dream about any of your operations, do you think? Dreams are very odd. There's quite a lot in my new book about dreaming, um, partly about the science of it and, uh, and partly my own dreams. The interesting thing about other people's dreams is they're so incredibly boring on the whole <laughs> because they lack that weird sense of profound meaning which somehow we inject into our dreams, although the front bits of our brain are relatively switched off, the rational bits, which is interesting, memory dreaming. Um, no, I don't dream very much about operating, but I keep on remembering patients, the, the ones that have done badly. I've forgotten all the successes, but and particularly after my initial diagnosis of cancer, when I didn't know, I didn't know if I had metastatic disease or not. So I, I thought should have, because my PSA was so high. Um, and then I kept on remembering bad results. They were lurking everywhere, you know, behind every tree, behind every bit of furniture. But that's all calmed down now. And just looking back to yourself when you were having that breakdown at Oxford, mm. what would you say to yourself now? I should have sought psychiatric help at the beginning. 
perhaps, but I didn't. And I did this crazy thing of going off to work as a theatre porter. And it was when I came back, and I was still pretty unhappy, a very a very good friend of mine, in fact, she was a psychiatric social worker, said, go, go and see somebody. And that was one of the many people to whom I'm indebted. And what would you say to your grandchildren about how to live their life? Life is hard. Ah, it's the old thing about, you know, being part of a loving family is all important. And also give oneself time, you know, not to react too quickly, to not make decisions in a hurry, to, to rethink things next day. It's not the end of the world. You're, you know, the, the emotional bits of your brain are driving you to make instant quick decisions, but it's best if you take your time over them. But then at the same time, and I can think of all the crazy decisions I made, like running away from Oxford, becoming a doctor more or less was a sudden decision. Our unconscious seems to know what's good for us as well sometimes. I mean, the whole mistake is to see the, the conscious self and the unconscious self as separate things, or one on top of the other. They're not. They are... They are part of the same phenomenon, and we simply don't have the metaphors to describe it or understand it, and I found that profoundly, profoundly interesting. Henry Marsh, thank you very much for talking to us. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, Henry Marsh. The producers were Anya Pierce and Lucy Ditchmont, and the series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app, or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, which features insights from our interviews with guests such as Richard Branson, Tom Daly and Daphne Park. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.